I didn't mention this last time, but actually in the ancient Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah was one book, Ezra and Nehemiah, that was just called Ezra. And so just to kind of see how we got into separating these uh, two books, when the, the Greek-speaking Jews came along and made the, the Septuagint uh, in 132 BC, roughly, um, they broke it down here into three books. There was first Ezra, second, and third. And, uh, of course, now this is considered a, apocryphal. So we've broken art when Jerome did his Latin uh, Vulgate translation 405 AD. Uh, we separated this out as an apocryphal writing. And now we have these two books as Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, just as a little bit of an overview, I really like what the Message Bible has. It has a little introductory section prior to uh, most of the books. And, and I really like what Eugene Peterson wrote here about the person of Nehemiah. <clears throat> he said, separating life into distinct categories of sacred and secular damages, sometimes irreparably, any attempt to live a whole and satisfying life, a coherent life with meaning and purpose, a life lived to the glory of God. Nevertheless, the practice is widespread. But where did all these people come up with the habit of separating themselves and the world around them into these two camps? It surely wasn't from the Bible. The Holy Scriptures from beginning to end strenuously resist such a separation. The damage to life is most obvious when the separation is applied to daily work. And now we'll see how this applies to, to our books. It is common for us to refer to the work of pastors, priests, and missionaries as sacred, and that of lawyers, farmers, engineers, Physicians, could we say, as secular. It is also wrong. Work, by its very nature, is holy. The biblical story is dominated by people who have jobs in gardening, shepherding, the military, politics, carpentry, tent making, homemaking, fishing, and more. Nehemiah is one of those. He started out as a government worker in the employ of a foreign king. Then he became, and this is the work he tells us of in these memoirs, a building contractor called in to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. His co-worker Ezra was a scholar and teacher working with the scriptures. Nehemiah worked with stones and mortar. The stories of the two men are interwoven in a seamless fabric of vocational holiness. Neither job was more or less important or holy than the other. Nehemiah needed Ezra. Ezra needed Nehemiah. And God's people needed the work of both of them. We still do. <clears throat> and so I just kind of like that thought just about uh, work and you know, we, we tend to call certain types of work sacred and other not. And so certainly, you know, the work that all of you are going into, here's a picture of many of you here. I found this on the internet. There's Dr. Werner. I think it was his birthday. All right. So, I mean, in fact, I would have to say that um, if we wanted to parallel a work that is after the life of Jesus, a physician would be a closer parallel than a pastor, actually. I mean, Jesus spent most of his uh, ministry healing people. And, of course, he preached also. Okay, but, but you know you can do both of those as a, as a physician. So we need to think of that as a, more in terms of, a, of a, as a sacred um, profession. <clears throat> but anyway, I want to just read large portions here of the first four chapters of Nehemiah so we kind of get the context and we understand the setting. And there are two major specific parts of the story that, that I want to talk about um, here in this Bible study. So this is the account of what Nehemiah accomplished. In the 20th year that Artaxerxes was emperor of Persia, I, Nehemiah, was in Susa, the capital city. <clears throat> Han and I, one of my brothers, arrived from Judah with another group, and I asked them about Jerusalem and about the other Jews who had returned from exile in Babylonia. They told me that those who had survived and were back in the homeland were in great difficulty, and that the foreigners who lived nearby looked down on them. 
They also told me that the walls of Jerusalem were still broken down and that the gates had not been restored since the time they were burned. When I heard all this, I sat down and wept. For several days I mourned and did not eat. I prayed to God, Lord God of heaven, you are great and we stand in fear of you. You faithfully keep your covenant with those who love you and do what you command. Look at me, Lord, and hear my prayer as I pray day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. And, and here this reminds me so much of Daniel's prayer. Remember where he takes on the whole responsibility. We have sinned. We have sinned. I confess that we, the people of Israel, have sinned. My ancestors and I have sinned. We have acted wickedly against you and have not done what you commanded. We have not kept the laws which you gave us through Moses, your servant. <clears throat> Listen now to my prayer and to the prayers of all your other servants who want to honor you. Give me success today and make the emperor merciful to me. In those days, I was the emperor's wine steward. And, you know, you could preach a whole sermon about this that Nehemiah says, give me success today. And then you just read on in the story. One day, four months later, okay, and, and then it seems like here's where God helped him, even though the request was, please do it today. So one day, four months later, when Emperor Artaxerxes was dining, I took the wine to him. He had never seen me look sad before, so he asked, why are you looking so sad? You aren't sick, so it must be that you're unhappy. I was startled and answered, may your majesty live forever. How can I keep from looking sad when the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The emperor asked, what is it that you want? I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I said to the emperor, emperor so he's in conversation with the emperor, and during that conversation, I prayed to the God of heaven. I mean, he's, he's you know, kind of very quickly um, here, tries to get some insight uh, from God, and then says, if your majesty is pleased with me and is willing to grant my request, let me go to the land of Judah, to the city where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild the city. The emperor, with the empress sitting at his side, approved my request. He asked me how long I would be gone and when I would return, and I told him. And then I asked him to grant me the favor of giving me letters to the governors of west of Euphrates province, instructing them to let me travel to Judah. I asked also for a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal forests, instructing him to supply me with timber for the gates of the fort that guard the temple, for the city walls and for the house I was to live in. The emperor gave me all I asked for because God was with me. And remember Ezra, he said, you know, he just boasted that God will protect me. And so he didn't take any uh, company of military with him. Uh, well, they did go with Nehemiah, but maybe he was just embarrassed to turn down the king. But the emperor sent some army officers and a troop of cavalry with me, and I made the journey to west of Euphrates. There I gave the emperor's letters to the governors. Okay, and now these two guys were, were just against him. And if you read through the whole book of Nehemiah, you see how deceptively uh, these two individuals uh, worked against the rebuilding of the wall. But Sanballat, who was the governor of Samaria, and Tobiah, who was probably the lead official of the province of Ammon, heard that someone had come to work for the good of the people of Israel, and they were highly indignant. I went on to Jerusalem, and for three days I did not tell anyone what God had inspired me to do for Jerusalem. And then in the middle of the night, I got up and went out, taking a few of my companions with me, because it was dangerous. I mean, there were a lot of people, enemies, um, lurking around. The only animal we took was the donkey that I rode on. And I won't read through this, but he walked around, he inspected the walls very carefully at nighttime. 
It was still night as I left the city through the valley gate on the west and went south past Dragon's Fountain to the rubbish gate. As I went, I inspected the broken walls of the city and the gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then on the east side of the city, I went north to the fountain gate and the king's pool. The donkey I was riding on could not find any path through the rubble. So I went down to Kidron Valley. It's a familiar name. And I rode along, looking at the wall. And then I returned the way I had come and went back to the city through the valley gate. None of the local officials knew where I had gone or what I had been doing. So far, I had not said anything to any of the other Jews, the priests, the leaders, the officials, or anyone else who would be taking part in the work. But now I said to them, See what trouble we are in because Jerusalem is in ruins and its gates are destroyed. Let's rebuild the city walls and put an end to our disgrace. And I told them how God had been with me and helped me and what the emperor had said to me. And they responded, Let's start rebuilding. And they got ready to start the work. When Sanballat and Tobiah and an Arab named Geshem heard what we were planning to do, they laughed at us and said, What do you think you're doing? Are you going to rebel against the emperor? I answered, The God of heaven will give us success. We are his servants, and we are going to start building. But you have no right to any property in Jerusalem, and you have no share in its traditions. Okay, so they they rebuilt the walls, and uh, they did this. I'll just give a few examples um, with much opposition. Okay, but that's not the main point here I'm going to make from this Bible study. But just as an example, when Sanballat heard that we Jews had begun rebuilding the wall, he became furious and began to ridicule us. In front of his companions and the Samaritan troops, he said, What do these miserable Jews think they're doing? Do they intend to rebuild the city? Do they think that by offering sacrifices they can finish the work in one day? Can they make building stones out of heaps of burnt rubble? Tobiah was standing there beside him, and he added, what kind of a wall could they ever build? Even a fox could knock it down. And uh, just make the one point here. What we see so many times in Nehemiah is something happens, and then it always continues. The next thing is, I prayed. So he, he really seemed to try to faithfully deal with, with every opposition by talking with God, and then it seemed like there was some inspiration, and he was able to respond in, in a way that was uh, helpful. So Sanballat, Tobiah, and the people of uh, Arabia, Ammon, and Ashdod heard that we were making progress in rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem and that the gaps in the wall were being closed, so they became very angry. So they all plotted together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. But again, there it is. We prayed to our God and kept men on guard against them day and night. So they literally had half the people on guard, the other half building. Some of the people were building, were holding a sword in one hand while they were building with the other. You know, So it was very difficult, but they ended up um, completing the task. Okay, but here's, here's uh, one of the two major points here I wanted to get to. And now we're up to chapter 5 in Nehemiah. So sometime later, many of the people, both men and women, began to complain against the other Jews. Some said, we have large families. We need grain to keep us alive. Others said, we've had to mortgage our fields and vineyards and houses to get enough grain to keep us from starving. Still others said, we had to borrow money to pay the royal tax on our fields and vineyards. And um, if you read on, what was happening is, you know, the people didn't have food, so they had to borrow so that they could have food, and then they didn't have collateral to pay back. And so oftentimes, even their own children, they would then have to give off into slavery to pay off the debt that they had used to buy food or a house or whatever. So you have a group of people that are getting poorer and poorer and even moving into slavery, and then you have another group that are you know, getting rich off of all this. So their complaint goes on. 
We are of the same race as the other Jews. Aren't our children just as good as theirs? But we have to make slaves of our children. Some of our daughters have already been sold as slaves. We are helpless because our fields and vineyards have been taken away from us. So this is, they're becoming slaves of other Jews, not of another nation. And so Nehemiah here, when I heard their complaints, I grew angry and decided to act. I denounced the leaders and officials of the people and told them, you are oppressing your own relatives. I called a public assembly to deal with the problem and said, as far as we have been able, we have been buying back our Jewish relatives who had to sell themselves to foreigners. Now you are forcing your own relatives to sell themselves to you, their own people. The leaders were silent and could find nothing to say. Okay, but here's what I find really uh, admirable here about the person of, of Nehemiah. Okay, then he said, what you're doing is wrong. You ought to obey God and do what's right. Then you would not give our enemies, the Gentiles, any reason to ridicule us. Even I and my relatives and my associates are lending them money and grain. So Nehemiah was lending. But let us abandon this practice of seizing collateral. Okay, taking slaves to to repay for a debt that they couldn't keep up with. Cancel all the debts they owe you, money or grain or wine or olive oil, and give them back their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses right now. And um, there are many times in the Old Testament where they were forbidden from charging interest on debts. Okay, but, but that's what they were doing. And the leaders replied, we'll do as you say. We'll give the property back and not try to collect the debts. I called the priests and made the leaders swear in front of them to keep the promise they had just made. And now listen to this. During all the 12 years that I was governor of the land of Judah, um, neither my relatives nor I ate the food I was entitled to have as governor. Every governor who had been in office before me had been a burden to the people and had demanded 40 silver coins a day for food and wine. Even their servants had oppressed the people. But I acted differently because I honored God. I put all my energy into rebuilding the wall and did not acquire any property. Everyone who worked for me joined in the rebuilding. Now, it really says something when the one on, in top you know, uh, lives out the example. I mean, it's, it's so often what we see is the, the one on the top may say all kinds of things about how we should be treating people and, and all of that. But when you've got the one in charge who himself is not benefiting you know, from, from all of this, he, was, he had a right to money and food and, and all of this, and he didn't lay claim to any of that. Okay, that's, that's a really leading by example. And so he said, I regularly fed at my table 150 of the Jewish people and their leaders, besides all the people who came to me from the surrounding nations. Every day I served one beef. I'm not sure what one beef is, but one cow? I don't know. Six of the best sheep, many chickens, and every 10 days I provided a fresh supply of wine. But I knew what heavy burdens the people had to bear, and so I did not claim the allowance that the governor is entitled to. Okay, and it would have been wrong in this setting where you've got people um, you know, who are um, really being abused, going into slavery. would have been wrong for Nehemiah to have taken all those things. Right? So that's admirable. Now we have to, um, I just have to admit that Nehemiah also says this several times in the book. This is the last verse of Nehemiah. Remember all this, O God, and give me credit for it. So anyway, that's kind of interesting. But we want to, you know, try to catch glimpses of God's kingdom. What does God's kingdom look like? And I think we get here in the Old Testament a little glimpse of God's kingdom. Okay, remember, what, what did the disciples, what did they always want? Uh, Jesus, are you now going to rise to power? Can I sit at your right side? 
Okay, they were, they were looking for a power over structure. Okay, and they were looking forward to the day when Jesus would establish that power over um, kind of a structure. And so Jesus, kind of in the context of this, he told them this story. You know that the rulers of nations have absolute power over people, and their officials have absolute authority over people, but that's not the way it's going to be among you. Okay, so the, the Christian kingdom, yes, this is, this is all we know from the world. It's always that way. You have people on the top, and they're in charge, and you have people lower down. It's a, it's a hierarchy, hierarchical structure. Okay, but that is not the way it is to be among you. Hey, here's what God's kingdom looks like. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be most important among you will be your slave. It's the same way with the Son of Man. He didn't come so that others could serve him, okay, though he's God. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many people. And so it, it really, it's, it's very much, it's an upside-down kingdom. It's exactly the opposite of everything we see around us. Okay, that the, the Christian kingdom is the, the powerful person is the one who um, serves. Okay, that's the Christ-like kingdom. Okay, so much of this um, here in the New Testament, you know, the, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, says all these things, love is this, love is that. But it also says what love is not. Love is not selfish or love is not self-seeking. Okay, God's kingdom is, I think we could use the word unselfish, other-centered. Okay, it's focused outward. It's not, not for serving self. That's what we see a little bit in, in, in Nehemiah in this story. And I really like this quote from the book uh, Education. We want to know what is God's kingdom? How do we identify it? Okay, this is what it looks like. Unselfishness. Um, could we say other-centered love? Unselfishness, that's all right, um, is the principle, that's a pretty strong claim, the principle of God's kingdom, is the principle that Satan hates. Its very existence he denies. From the beginning of the great controversy, he, he has endeavored to prove God's principles of action to be selfish. And he deals in the same way with all who serve God. To disprove Satan's claim is the work of Christ and all who bear his name. Now, do we describe the life, the death of Jesus in this way, very often. It was to give in his own life an illustration of unselfishness that Jesus came in the form of humanity. I think that's a pretty uh, powerful statement. You know, we think of the, the death, we tend to associate it with a, a price that was paid rather than an example of how to live. Okay, but it was to give in his own life an illustration of unselfishness, of other-centered love, that Jesus came in the form of humanity. And all who accept this principle are to be workers together with him in demonstrating it in practical life. Okay, so we, we take on the banner of, of Christianity. We, we need to embrace um, this different, very different type of a kingdom. All right, so lots and lots of New Testament verses. I'll just give you one that I like here in 1 Peter on this. So do your work not for mere pay, but from a real desire to serve. And all of you must put on the apron of humility to serve one another. For the scripture says, God resists the proud, but shows favor to the humble. So again, what does God's kingdom look like? It's, it's not a power over. You have someone up here delegating down. And uh, some have referred to this as, uh, that's a power over kingdom, that God's king is a, uh, kingdom is a power under kingdom. Okay, we, we evangelize, we run God's kingdom through service, through power under, not through power over. 
And, you know, so many times we get the description of the second coming and uh, the, the people that are rewarded, it seems like they're, they're never rewarded for, you know, good job, you guys had the right list, you kept the right doctrines. They're always rewarded for other things. So in this, in this parable, the king will say to the people on his right, come, you that are blessed by my father, come and possess the kingdom which has been prepared for you ever since the creation of the world. I was hungry and you fed me. Thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, you received me in your homes. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick, you took care of me. In prison and you visited me. And you know, as a, as a physician, you, you, know, you really, you care for all kinds of, of these people. It's a, just a wonderful opportunity to, uh, to, to live out the kingdom. Um, I think, as, as a physician. But again, I, I don't mean to you know, put uh, doctrines as a notch down, but if the doctrines, if our beliefs don't somehow change our worldview to live in this kind of a way, then um, how important are they? But it seems to be these are you know, who God rewards um, here at the second coming. Okay, so that was one point. The other that uh, really impressed me um, here in the book of Nehemiah is this very, very moving story where all the people come together and Ezra gets up and reads the Bible, which was completely foreign to them. So by the seventh month, the people of Israel were all settled in their towns. On the first day of that month, they all assembled in Jerusalem in the square just on, inside the water gate. So we have a, a water gate in the Bible. And they asked Ezra, the priest and scholar of the law, which the Lord had given Israel through Moses, to get the book of the law and... This is the, the Torah. So when you hear the law, this is the books of Moses. Okay, big scroll. So Ezra brought it to the place where the people had gathered, men, women, and the children who were old enough to understand. And there in the square by the gate, he read the law to them from dawn until noon. Now, if we fall asleep after reading uh, five minutes of uh, scripture, I mean, imagine here from dawn until noon, they just read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and, and so on. It's, you know, it'd probably take you about that long to read through all those books. And they all listened, notice, attentively. Okay, they were really uh, tuned in to Ezra. So Ezra was standing on a wooden platform that had been built for the occasion. And the following men stood at his right, and we have a long list of who those people were. And as Ezra stood there on the platform, high above the people, they all kept their eyes fixed on him. As soon as he opened the book, they all stood up. And Ezra said, praise the Lord, the great God. All the people raised their arms in the air and answered, amen, amen. And they knelt in worship with their faces to the ground. And they listened as he read the book. Then they rose and stood in their places. And the following Levites explained the law to them. So you have these people running throughout the crowd um, that are explaining what Ezra is reading. Now, why would there be a need for that? Well, here, they gave an oral translation of God's law and explained it so the people could understand it. And I think I may have mentioned this a few weeks ago, but you know, in the Babylonian captivity, of course, uh, they learned Aramaic. And so the language became Aramaic. And uh, the uh, Old Testament, of course, is written uh, largely in Hebrew. And so uh, uh, it would appear a lot of them no longer understood the Hebrew as it's being read. So you had to have these people going around translating um, from the Hebrew into the Aramaic so that they understood uh, what was being read. And then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people told them, this is a holy day for the Lord your God. Don't mourn or cry. All the people were crying as they listened to the reading of God's teaching. And I think other translations, they were so moved they began to cry. Because you just think the long period of time where they had 
just didn't, you know, they weren't reading the Bible, they had no idea what was in there, and what was read to them was really a story, wasn't it? I mean, from Genesis through the whole books of Moses, it's a story, and they had lost the story. And so as they're hearing the story again, they're so moved that they're all crying. Well, um, Ezra told them, now go home and have a feast. Share your food and wine with those who don't have enough. Today is a holy day to our Lord, so don't be sad. The joy that the Lord gives you will make you strong. And the Levites went around calming the people and telling them not to be sad on such a holy day. So all the people went home and ate and drank joyfully and shared what they had with others because they understood what had been read to them. And uh, really, I think this is, um, uh, is a process that should happen for each one of us. And, uh, you know, I, I recognized, I thought I knew the Bible pretty well. Um, you know, I went to, through uh, religious institutions and colleges and went to church and pretty much had the opinion that, you know, yeah, I know the story and I have a pretty good grasp of it. But um, since I've become much more interested in, the, in this for the last uh, 13 or 14 years, uh, I'm just amazed how, you know, it just, it's kind of like going through layers. It gets deeper and deeper and more and more things become clear. Uh, you know, I, I would never want to read a book twice. I, I don't think I've ever read a book twice except the Bible here, which is, you know, now how many times I've gone through the, the Bible with medical students. And it's, it's exciting. It gets uh, just amazing how much, uh, how much uh, there is to understand. And so I think, boy, if you start now, you'll have a head start on me. I was a long time after residency before any of this interested me. But I think, you know, reading the Bible and discovering is really an exciting process. So they were very moved. Now, I'm artificially kind of putting this point in here because what are we talking about? Translation, they're translating the Bible. And um, several years ago, I gave a two hour talk on Bible translations. I love the subject of uh, the translation of the Bible and that, that whole story. But I just wanna make a point um, here because um, every year I get at least one or two questions asking me about the Bible translations that I use uh, for this uh, Bible study. And, and usually it's maybe along the line of, well, how come you don't use the King James or the New King James? Or that's at least a frequent question that comes up. And I couldn't find this picture on Google Images, but um, several years ago we were in a Christian bookstore and they had all, you know, the dozens and dozens of Bibles there. And they were helping you choose what's a good Bible for a child. And so they started out with ages six to 10 or whatever it was. And then here's a Bible we'd recommend for 10 to 13. Here's a Bible we'd recommend for 13 to 16. And then finally, 16 to 18, you've really graduated to the top, uh, King James Bible. And uh, King James is a wonderful translation. I mean, uh, so this is not a knock on the King James, but, but clearly the emphasis, I mean, if you're just a child looking at this, you would think, boy, when I've really made it, you know, I'll, I'll graduate and get the, the real Bible, uh, the King James Bible. So just, I wanna say just a few words on the translation of the Bible. <clears throat> um, so again, King James, Fantastic, no, no problem with the King James, but you should read the preface to the King James Bible. And uh, I'll just read some of this. Unfortunately, they don't include that in the King James or the New King James. But here's some quotes from the preface. The Bishop's Bible was to be followed with as little alteration as the truth of the original will permit, and to include other translations. Tyndall's, and that's not a typo, that's how they spelled it, Matthews, Coverdale's, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible. And so really the, the King James is a, is a revision. And they say as much in the preface, not a new translation. Okay, now 
they did have you know, the best available at that time, Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. But this was primarily a revision of the Bishop's Bible, which was itself a revision of the Great Bible, which was itself a revision of the Coverdale and Tyndale Bible. And so, you know, the, the King James, really the, the crowning achievement of Bible translation up to that time, um, was a revision of all of these other versions. So have, as other people have said, that the credit of the King James in terms of vocabulary should go to Tyndale. And if you read what Tyndale translated, many of our most familiar, beautiful King James passages, straight from Tyndale. Um, the expression and harmony to Coverdale, the scholarship and accuracy to the Geneva Bible. Now, just some interesting things here, since we're talking about Bible translation. The first printed version of the King James contained about one error for every 10 pages. Some of these errors due to printing. If you still look up the King James, they're still there. This is not a translator error. This was a, a printing error, but it's, it's persisted. So here's one, Matthew 23, 34. Ye blind guides which strain at a gnat, should be strain out a gnat, but it's, it's persisted in there, and swallow a camel. Um, and fortunately, they, they fixed some of them. Thou shalt commit adultery in Exodus 20. They, they fixed that printing error and took out the, the shalt um, commit adultery. Um, but, but the beauty of the, of the King James, so much that we're familiar with, Jesus' words, ask and it shall be given you, seek and you shall find, knock it shall be opened to you, uh, the, the beautiful poetry um, here of the, of the King James Bible, and the, of course the Lord's Prayer, which you know, we're familiar with in the, in the King James. But um, you know, an extreme example, I, I heard a story of a woman who said, well, I, I want to read the King James because I want to hear the words of Jesus as he said them. And of course, you all know that, well, Jesus spoke Aramaic, right? So even what we read in the Gospels is Greek. Okay, when we read the Gospels, the words of Jesus, that itself is a translation of the words of Jesus, which uh, we don't actually have. Okay, so we should just acknowledge for all the good things to be said about the King James that uh, some of the weaknesses, that the knowledge of Hebrew was largely derived from the Bible. Okay, and now as more scholarship, we have learned, well, not me, but uh, translators have learned so much about the Hebrew from extra-biblical sources, which then you can take back to the Bible and uh, the original manuscripts and pull out a lot more meaning. Same thing could be said for the Greek. Uh, they had a, a man ancient manuscripts that only went back to the 10th century. Okay, if you're really wanting to make you know, the most accurate translation, of course, you want to get as close to the original as possible. And so the more modern uh, translations have ancient manuscripts uh, back to the 5th century. Hundreds and thousands of uh, manuscripts, which, you know, all need to be uh, put together. And, of course, the English language has changed. And so just all the underlined words here that uh, we do not have in our current English language. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. It's, it's just a difficult, you know, for us to to comprehend uh, some of this. Or in 2 Corinthians, lest haply, if they of Macedonia come with me and find you unprepared, we, that we say not ye, should be ashamed in this same confident boasting. That's kind of difficult for us, isn't it? And of course, haply does not mean happily you know, walking along. This has an entirely um, different meaning. So, so we need a translation. We need a translation that you know, speaks to us in our day. And so... Um, 
Anyway, can any of you tell me what vein jangling refers to? But, uh, so we have all, these, uh, all of these kinds of issues. So here's kind of a summary quote I like about the King James. To many people, the King James sounds like the Bible because it is different than our modern English. It is old and therefore seems to be authoritative. And other Bibles just don't sound right. Most Bible translators greatly respect the King James for what it is and what it was, but the King James can't be used in modern translation work for the simple reason that its language and its text are out of date. So we should praise it, but again, I think uh, kind of the point I want to make here on this is we have to understand it. And so much of the, the King James and the older translations uh, use all of the Latin words, you know, expiation, propitiation, salvation, and all of these. These are the Latin. Okay, and of course, the Bible was not written in Latin. And so we, we sometimes assume, and, and the translation I often use is the, the Good News Bible, that doesn't use the Latin words. The question is, can we translate the Greek into English, or is it, do we only have to use the Latin? And I think we can use English words to, to translate um, some of the Greek. And this will become especially important, obviously, as we get into the New Testament. Oh, and by the way, um, several years ago, I bought several boxes of uh, Good News Bibles and then just kind of forgot about them. So I thought, since I'm on this subject, I put a box out on the table there. So if any of you are interested, you can just grab one on the way out. Good News Bible has lots of flaws, too. So there's no perfect translation. And I think the, the, the value is if you get a program, like a computer program, you can quickly click on 20 different versions and see how different translators have, have worked on this. Okay, so that was a little aside about uh, why I don't use the, the King James, at least uh, for the Bible study, for those of you that have asked. Now, remember, so they read this, they cried, they're very moved, they go home, and then there was this incredible revival. All the people who had come back from captivity built shelters. So they'd never kept the Festival of Shelters until they actually read it in the books of Moses, and now uh, they decide to keep it. And this was the first time it had been done since the days of Joshua, son of Nun. And everybody was excited and happy. So they find out about this festival, and they're all excited now to, to keep it. Okay, and then the people have this incredible prayer, and it tells you. In fact, I'm just going to read portions, but you should all read Nehemiah 9. It's an incredible chapter, and it, it tells you basically what the people read that so moved them to tears. And then the people of Israel prayed this prayer. You, Lord, you alone are Lord. You made the heavens and the stars of the sky. So man, they started with Genesis. You made land and sea and everything in them. You gave life to all. The heavenly powers bow down and worship you. You, Lord God, chose Abraham and led him out of Ur, Babylonia. So they're recounting the story that they just heard. You changed his name to Abraham. And just what I want to point out, what really comes out in Nehemiah 9 is this theme. You, God, kept your promise because you are faithful. You gave them good laws and sound teachings. And then mixed in, we rebelled. Our ancestors grew proud and stubborn. So you have this back and forth. But you are faithful, God, but we rebelled. You are faithful, we rebelled. You are a God who forgives. You are gracious and loving, slow to be angry. You did not abandon them there in the desert. So what I took away from this is that the people were overwhelmed because they had seen how God had really been with them, that God had been faithful. Okay, they had been the ones that had rebelled. And I think they were just very moved by the whole story of how this, their problem, their situation, was not uh, from God's doing. It was because of their own rebellion. 
So this uh, finishes off here, in your goodness, you told them what they should do. You fed them manna, gave them water to drink. Through 40 years in the desert, you provided all they needed. Their clothing never wore out, and their feet were not swollen with pain. Okay, so here on the subject, I think, again, if we're going to read the Bible fresh, if it's going to have an impact for us, I think that the same impact will be in this area, that we need to be convinced. I think the Bible is the book that persuades us of God's faithfulness, God's trustworthiness. Again, you have been faithful. And so this is, this, this is where we get this in Romans, Romans 3, where Paul would say, true, some of them were unfaithful, but just because they were unfaithful, does that mean God will be unfaithful? Of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him, you will be proved right in what you say. You will win your case in court. So the, the subject here is God's faithfulness. And if I could just say here, we, we won't have a chance to get to Romans, obviously, uh, during this school year, but what is the good news? I mean, I think it is God's faithfulness. That Paul's whole thesis here in Romans 1, what is the good news? For the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. In other words, the good news, the gospel, reveals something to us about God. As many other translations have it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What is righteousness? Um, you know, many people have suggested God's goodness, God's faithfulness, um, God's trustworthiness. Again, the, the good news tells us something about God. Yes, it's good news that we get to go to heaven, but that's, that's kind of small g. The, the ultimate good news is something about who God is. Um, a few years ago, Richard Hayes came out. Uh, this is a very well-known scholar, um, not an Adventist. Uh, he's written one of the Christianity Today listed their most influential Christian books over the last 100 years, and his was one of the top 100. And I was just blown away. He gave a, a lecture, two lectures on the book of Romans. Okay, here's how he summarized the book of Romans, and I really love this. He said, many people have misread the book of Romans as a book that explains how we can legally get to heaven. This interpretation, however, misses the central question that Paul is answering in this book. And that central question is this, can God be trusted? Okay, I think that these people in Jerusalem, having the whole story just read to them, and they became convinced God can be trusted. God has been faithful, and I think that's what moved them so much. So perhaps we need to reread some of these books and uh, be persuaded of the same ourselves. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for the Bible, which is a story, which tells us really your story about um, what you have done, how you've dealt with rebellion. Um, pray that we may read the story, understand it, uh, perhaps in a different light, and that each one of us would fully become persuaded that uh, you can be trusted. Amen.